Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. Welcome to Plenary Session Reup Edition. On this bonus episode of Plenary Session, I'm going to take a little bit of content that you may have missed from prior episodes and bring it to your attention. In this excerpt, I'm going to take the conversation Michael Hayes and I had on tumor treating electrical fields, and I'm going to give this to you just by itself in case you want to listen to this, because I've heard a lot of discussion on TTF, and I want to be able to give people the link just to that conversation. So if you haven't listened to this, check it out. And we'll be back later with more episodes of Plenary Session. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Let's talk about tumor-treating electrical fields. Yeah. There's some brain doctors out there, brain oncologists, radiation therapists, that gave a little bit of pushback about this issue because they point out a few things to me. One, there's no dispute. Glioblastoma multiform is a serious disease. It has a very short survival. Mm -hmm. We ought to do better for patients who have that condition. There's no no doubt in my mind. Um, But, I would say the but, I think... Everyone can agree that something is a bad problem. It's kind of a bigger philosophical thing. You know, we can agree that something is a very bad problem from poverty to, you know, to dying from a cancer to, you know, whatever you want. We can agree it's a bad problem. Just because it's a bad problem doesn't mean you have to be willing to adopt an ineffective solution. I think they're separate, right? Problems are bad. And we can com, com, we can have sympathy for a bad problem. We can hope to do better. But the way in which we judge interventions has to be, I think, sort of standardized. I mm-hmm. mean, it's whether or not they work or not. Yeah. This intervention, I would say that the data is not it's not absent. I mean, there's something. But it's an interesting trial. You want to talk a little bit about, I guess, first, what is TTF? Yeah, so that's yeah. a great question. So so first, I want to echo what you said. I am anti-glioblastoma. I yes, think me we are, too. We are We're all... Bo- right anti-glioblastoma right right? so in no way was this paper a a critique of of how we treat glioblastoma or the effort to do better so so tumor treating fields are a medical device so it's not a drug Um, it's a medical device that you place um, kind of transmitter arrays on the scalp so initially for glioblastoma it's on the scalp and it emits alternating electric frequencies at for glioblastoma it's 200 kilohertz, I believe. Millihertz? Millihertz. That sounds more accurate. It's like when you tell me the temperature in Celsius. It means means nothing to me. But 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 the idea is it disrupts 
the mitosis, yeah, microtubules, the microtubules of, of dividing cells. And in glioblastoma, where you have these dividing cells, it can disrupt that process. And there's also some evidence that it's synergistic with chemotherapy. So the combination of chemotherapy with these alternating electric fields kills cancer. And by um, and by evidence, you mean evidence in in vitro, in Correct. in, in, vi- in, mo- in models, right? In mouse models and in thing. And the other thing uh, is you have to shave your head every other day and wear this kind of like uh, onerous yes. Um, uh, yes. helmet. Kind so of it's thing. this helmet, and then the electrodes can kind of burn the scalp a little bit, or it burns the skin a little sometimes. And then you have to carry around a um, battery pack. A or? battery pack, which I, I I found an article the the most recent battery pack. The entire pack weighs 2.7 pounds, I, I believe. See, I see. So that's a sort of a heavy MacBook. Yes. Um, you also have to, um, uh, somebody was saying online, and I haven't verified this to be true, but um, when I was pushing back on one aspect of the trial design, they say that it actually makes your scalp tingle. Um, so I didn't know that, if it, if it tingles or doesn't tingle. Well, well, we'll kind of talk about why they decided not to do the it sham, as a okay. sham, but yeah. that was one of the arguments yeah. that they, they felt it would be unethical and that um, that the patients would know because their scalp wasn't tingling. But, you know, we're both physicians and I wouldn't have known that it's supposed to make it tingle. that it's supposed to make your scalp tingle necessarily. The other thing is one might imagine that um, you could sham the tingle either with sort of a gelatinous put some icy hot on there yeah right some sort of a topical um uh, you know uh, uh, gel or ointment that could sham a tingle or um, perhaps even something about the what the mask is actually doing that will make it tingle a little bit correct so so getting to to the trial so the trial was um so ef14 or um they they took patients with glioblastoma that had been initially treated with local therapy, so excision, if, if possible, or biopsy, and then temozolomide. Yeah, and standard then of care. Standard and, of care. And radi- yeah, radiation. If and radiation. Yeah. And then after they finished that initial course, they were subsequently randomized to either continue temozolomide maintenance or temozolomide plus this tumor-treating field right. device. Right. And they were able to find a small, statistically significant PFS benefit, progression mm-hmm. survival benefit. Correct. And in the initial report, an overall survival benefit with a p-value of like 0.03, mm-hmm. just on the good side of the 0.05, not the bad side. 0.051, you pack your bags and you, you, you're you thrown out of town. 0.049, you're a winner. That's right. Winner. Okay, so that was the initial result. But since then, um, there's a follow-up paper, I think, in JAMA where they have a little bit more robustness Correct. in that signal. Okay. So this is the trial. This is what people justify the practice on. Correct. Well, and it, and it's been adopted, right? So yes. it's, it's it's included in the NCCN guidelines mm-hmm. for treating glioblastoma. I see. Um, and I believe it's been FDA approved for this indication as yeah. well. More recently, it was approved for mesothelioma in the absence of a controlled study altogether, and that's a whole other can of worms. That's a very problematic approval, but now they're taking full advantage of the device standards, which the device approve. Well, you know, I criticize drug approval because I think the bar is so low you can trip over it. But the nice thing about device approval is the bar is so low you don't even notice it. You skate right past over that bar. You don't even catch your toe. Yeah. So, um, so here we are, one randomized trial. Mm-hmm. Um, people kind of pointed out to me online. They say, well, you know what, Temidar also only has one randomized trial that really supports its use in um, in uh, glioblastoma. Uh, that's also not sham controlled, hmm. and I and I said you know fair enough, uh, but there's some differences here. Um, the use of Tamidar and other cytotoxic chemotherapy agents, I would I would humbly argue has a higher pretest probability that it would work in any particular malignancy 
because of a body of evidence that shows it works in other malignancies. Uh, that we have a lot of data that um, perhaps even a thousand or ten thousand randomized control trials that show a cytotoxic drug um, improves outcomes in a lethal cancer. We don't have that for an electrical current that alternates that's placed on the scalp outside of the brain. Um, we simply don't have that pretest probability. Uh, it is an entirely novel mechanism of action. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when things are very new and novel and when things are very off the beaten path, I think the evidence that supports them has to also be uh, quite compelling. Um, and so that's why, I mean, it's not just my opinion. I mean, we'll talk about the editorial stances. Some people actually agree. You, you need a confirmatory study. You need maybe a sham control. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is when you do this study um, and you don't use a sham control, uh, th- this is an intervention that I think changes the way in which people interact with healthcare. Um, it requires an extra caregiving. It requires people checking in on you. It requires making sure this is used correctly. That's all care that's being delivered differently. Um, it's very different than a pill or something like that that you just pop in your mouth. It's a, I think it's a cumbersome intervention. And, and it can change, I think, perhaps the way in which the doctor manages the side effects of your Temidar, the way in which the doctor um, cares for you otherwise. Is mm-hmm. that fair to say? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think one of the interesting things um, uh, in, in the original report that was, I believe, in 2015 in this trial, that the patients who got TTF, um, the tumor treating field device, so they had a delay in their progression-free survival. Yeah. So they had longer time to progression, but they also were more likely to use second line chemotherapy agents. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of a discrepancy to me. And, and what that tells me is that those those patients were being treated differently or they were being more aggressive with treatment or there's something about them that they were being managed in a different way. Yeah, there's an imbalance in secondary therapy. Typically in these studies where one group has delayed progression over the other, if there's an imbalance in any direction, it's to the group that's progressing faster. They're getting more therapies. And that's what I would expect. And that's what I expect, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that does make one wonder if this intervention is what it's doing is it's really, I think, forcing healthcare providers to take better care, supportive care of a patient, not necessarily the electrical fields. Mm-hmm. But this is all speculative. Yeah. I think. Let's all, I, I think yeah. the other thought is that, you know, if I as a patient have this brand new therapy yeah. that is novel and sounds really wonderful, I might be more likely to change the care that, that I want or oh, right. change oh, the care that I receive. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. That's quite interesting. Okay. So I think we've pointed out that uh, one one big point pretest probability this mechanism action improves outcomes very very low because it's hitherto unproven in the history of mankind um very different than drugs i think uh uh the way in which this interacts with healthcare systems and patient preferences is complex and and hitherto uh, not fully explored um nevertheless there are some virtues here it's a randomized control trial Mm -hmm. the endpoint is survival i think the pfs is is neither here nor there but the endpoint of os is a real endpoint absolutely I, and I think the the problem with the progression-free survival as the the kind of intermediate endpoint mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that the the radiologists themselves <laughs> were not blinded either. And so, you know, the the decision of progression, which you've you've talked a lot about, right, is right. on based on you know radiologic endpoints is is very subject to bias, and yeah. that having this device can can influence that. Wait, let's pause on this a second. Are you sure? Because this person online says the radiologists were blind. In, in the blinded review, there's also a PFS benefit. He says. 
Uh, so they did do a secondary blinded review. That's correct. So that my understanding was the initial, the initial, was the initial read was unblinded. And then there was a secondary read that yeah. was blinded and was centralized. And if there was discrepancy, there was a third reader who would um, review it. But that if, if they decided that there wasn't progression when there was, they would not loop that back because the therapy had already been changed. Right, right. So they didn't change, like they there was no method to correct the initial error. And and you're correct. So they did do a, a like a secondary analysis where they kind of corrected for that in some way. But but again it goes back to that that issue of if we don't have a sham, you know, how we interact with those patients, how we assess progression changes. Yeah. And even perhaps maybe even compliance with Temidar, you know, at home and in the privacy of their house might be affected by I have this novel thing that's gonna help me, but I gotta do the two together. The doctors mm. say they're synergistic. Uh, it might be a Temadar reminder, if anything. Um, you know, this is all speculative. Oh, yeah. But the reason I think this speculation is important is because, let's make another point here. If there were seven randomized trials, four sham controlled, three non-sham controlled, and they all showed tumor-treating electrical fields improved survival in brain cancer, lung cancer, pancreas cancer, um, you know, sarcoma, uh, you and I are going to have a different discussion. We're going to be on the tumor treating electrical fields bandwagon. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to say that's just an overwhelming number of studies mm -hmm. you have done. I'm convinced that, you know, although individual studies might have strengths and weaknesses, the totality of the evidence is, I think, yeah. solid. Well, and, and going back to what we said about being anti glioblastoma, I want to be on that bandwagon. Right. right? You like, be. I right. want tumor treating fields to be really effective. And, and you know, the, the data from this trial are very encouraging. And, and yeah. in terms of like the, the step forward and you know you know when was the last time there was a, a potential change in overall survival for a medication in glioblastoma been a long to time this degree right, right. this yeah. is really encouraging right but we need to make sure we do it right especially for a novel therapy right, right? where we when we have when we're not sure if the mechanism of action is real that's when we need to be more careful and more um systematic about it before we generalize it to everything else right and i think now we'll shift gears and talk about your particular paper i mm -hmm. think we've we've done a good job of talking about this pros and cons i i i want to just say that i think reasonable impartial people can look at this trial and maybe feel differently on the spectrum from where it sounds like you and i are which is a little bit of guarded optimism mm -hmm. but still uncertainty to maybe people who feel less uncertainty and more optimism, that might be the other end of the spectrum. And mm -hmm. I think reasonable people can fall differently. But what we're interested in is whether or not the manufacturer might be encouraging people to fall one way or the other. And that's what you looked at. You mm -hmm. looked at um, editorials that specifically cited this paper and specifically talked about TTF and specifically spun it one way or the other. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so that was the goal is, is to, so we, we searched for editorials or articles um, that were peer reviewed and published. Um, so we kind of took out everything in the news um, and uh, looked at what those authors said about it. And, and essentially it came down into two camps. One was, this is pr really pretty impressive and we need to implement it. Versus the other is, is a lot of what you and I have talked about of, of we have some concerns and we want more studies and, you know, we are optimistic, but but before we implement, we need to do more. Right. Um, and 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 that to me is reasonable that the field has reached these two points. But you took it one step further 
which is you noted that the TTF manufacturer, NovoCure, has put a fair bit of money into the marketplace. Um, we can choose where we put our money as a manufacturer. We could put our money in, say, double-blind sham control trials, and then I think you're going to be able to influence opinion based on the results of those studies. You could also put the money into dinners where you um, have a nice meal and talk about the virtues of your products. You could put that money into consulting money. It turns out they're putting a lot of money into those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And what you looked at was if you're an editorialist who falls in our camp, which is not a negative camp, but rather a guarded optimism camp, okay, what's the rate of conflict? And if you're in a group that falls in the other camp, which is the I'm sold right now, what's the conflict? And let's just point out, there really, there really is no camp that's saying, absolutely, this is a no-go, stop all your trials, this is a useless product. There is no Correct. such camp. Nobody had that opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the guarded optimism or the enthusiastic support. Yes. Okay, so what's the rate of conflict of interest with NovoCure, personal financial payments, in both of these categories? All right, so... So we found about 15 of these editorials. It was a smaller number than we'd hoped for, but we found 15. Um, of those, I think nine were in the kind of pro category and six were in the, the guarded optimism category. Um, and then I'm having trouble remember the number of authors off to my head. I think in the pro category, there are about 35 authors and in the um, the guarded optimism category, yeah, 10 or 12, 14, yeah, something, something like, like that. that yeah. So in that, the guarded optimism category, the rate of conflict was essentially zero. Yeah. That I think I found a single author. Well, and, and so we looked at either, did they declare conflict of interest in That's the paper right. or, yeah. or did you find was I able to find it online um, via CMS open payments or, um, or any other way? Yeah. Um, and we found a single author who I think received $209. That's yeah. off the top of my head. Yeah, from like a single meal or something yes. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in the, the pro category of these 35 authors, two-thirds of them had declared or identified conflict of at least $1,000, I believe, and then one-third had received over $10,000. Yeah. And I guess I would say you're an internist, so one for $10,000, that, that's still real money to you, or have you have you gotten too rich already in your... No, I would... I <laughs> it's would, real money. I mean, that's... that's uh, most of these... Uh, there were some that were upwards of twenty or $30,000, yeah. and, and often these are in, like, a single paycheck. So I can't remember how many... You know, I... I, I I may have gotten one paycheck in my single life that is anywhere close to that. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And, and so I, I think that is real money. Yeah, I think it's real money. And, and the other side is that, you know, when you look at other fields and how people are affected by money, it, by doesn't, money, it, doesn't it really doesn't matter, yeah, it doesn't matter how much. Yeah. Um, people, it changes how they act. Yeah. And so that's what I think is, is this unspoken thing here, which is that, you know, reasonable people can fall on these two ends of the spectrum. But when you look at the stated editorial stands and you find it is just oh so lopsided, it's all, all, all the conflict is in the enthusiasm bandwagon. Almost none of the conflict is in the guarded optimism bandwagon. That is a concerning state of biomedicine. To me, it's not even a commentary about TTF. It's a commentary about um, are, we, are we in a profession that is free to engage with academic ideas free from the influence of third parties or are we in a profession where third parties can put a thumb on the scale you and i may be in the guarded optimism category you and i are not billionaires if we were a billionaire 
And if we were really motivated, we could have dinners and host dinners where we had guarded optimism TTF dinners, where we talked about, let's get Daryl Francis to talk about why sham controls are important. Let's talk about bias-resistant, bias-susceptible endpoints. Let's talk about how even if you blind the endpoint, the sham is not about blinding the endpoint. It's about blinding the process by which the endpoint is generated. You know, we could teach about sham. We could teach about medical reversals. We could teach about pretest probability. This sounds like... A fantastic dinner party. Yeah, well, <laughs> and any any funders out there, I've been actually serious about this dinner idea. How about a non-conflicted, a non-conflicted dinner agenda, non-conflicted conference series? If you're interested, email us at plenary session. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> I but, should. Oh, we should also say I I have no conflict, financial conflict with TTF with makers. TTF or any competitor of TTF. Except for you sold their stock short just before you did this. Definitely. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no you did And I would have to actually say I'd, I have no conflict with TTF and no conflict with, as I say, any for-profit entity in the healthcare space, but uh, particularly any pharmaceutical company. I'm not in the Temidar business either. I mean, I don't no. know. Uh, uh, the only uh, intellectual conflict I have is the same that Michael has endorsed, which is we're both anti-GBM. We want GBM to go away, and that's true. Um, but uh, we are also pro-evidence, and we want reliable causal evidence to guide treatment decisions. And here, I'm not going to say the evidence is the worst I've seen. It's not. Mm -mm. Uh, but it's not the best I've seen either. It's something in between. And so I think guarded optimism is the right stance. And again, seven seven randomized trials, seven are sham in different malignancies. Boom, I'm sold, hook, line, and sinker. One randomized trial, not sham, never been replicated, a second approval in mesothelioma with a non-randomized study. Oh, boy, that doesn't make me so happy. It's just a matter of the totality of the data. Anyway, so here we are. Um, Okay, so I think, you know, this is concerning to me. It's concerning because of the influence at stake. I don't know. What thoughts did you have when you when you probed this data? Hmm. So, you know, I think first off, uh, uh, this is a very limited study that you and I did, right? It, it has a lot of flaws and it is not perfect and it, it's it's possible that, that this is all random, but you're hurting my feelings. But yeah, <laughs> no. I, I'm the one that did most. Oh, of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hurting my own feelings. Oh, shoot. Yeah, he so, actually he did do. Most so of it. you yeah. know, I think that um, I, taking even with that kind of grain of salt, just yes. realizing that there is this huge discrepancy, and yes. that you know, almost every single paper that was you know profusely pro TTF had. I think over a thousand dollars of conflict yeah. in the authorship, yeah. and that's real. Yeah. And and um, I, I think that is concerning. And, and it may not be significant at all. We've talked about that. All of these financial conflict um, studies are all associative, right? right? There's no direct causative relationship, and right. there will never be. Right. Um, yeah. But when you just look at it at face value, it's a big discrepancy, and I think yeah. it's hard to ignore. You know, I. It's interesting, actually. Um, uh, the only entity that would actually kind of be capable of doing a causative study would be a company who would, who could actually randomize providers to the intervention or not. Actually, I, I mean, companies would never have to disclose that. They may not even have to register that they're doing such a study. They could do it internally for, um, it wouldn't even be called a randomized, it would be for marketing purposes. Um, they could do sort of a marketing study. I bet they have. I bet they have, yeah, you know? They're smart. They're smart, and they, I mean, the reason they, they give money to physicians is because it works it has and, to I mean, work, yeah. and it's it's been shown in in our literature from our side that yeah it influences prescribing our patterns prescribing decision patterns. patterns yeah we talked la in the last podcast with stacy about the aaron mitchell paper there's some nice work by kesselheim joe ross and colleagues great paper in the bmj there's some nice work by lisa barrow um that looked at i think um conflict of interest among editorialists in the wake of the hormone replacement therapy mm -hmm. um boondoggle circa 2002 2003 mm -hmm. um and and you know i always say with people 
um, you know, sometimes you get pushed back and say, how come you're not focusing all your efforts on intellectual bias, intellectual conflict of interest? I say, well, look, when intellectual conflict of interest has 200 publications plus uh, that document it and measure it and quantify it, then sure. The other thing I think that's very slippery with intellectual bias is, um, and it's not to say I don't think it's the case. I think there's something important. There's something to be said for being able to come up with a priori definitions and apply that to situations. For instance, someone could say that, look, Barack Obama had an intellectual bias that he wanted health care for all. He had that bias since his early 20s when he started to see some things that affected his intellectual thinking. And then he went forth into the world with that bias and he made sure it happened, you know. But do we think of that bias the same way you would think of is if, say, for instance, a president of the United States, I don't know, owned a piece of real estate right across the street and would lease it out to, you know, uh, high end foreign dignitaries while passing foreign policy that supported those foreign... No, we think about those so differently. One would be sort of almost an overt act of corruption, and the other would be sort of just the natural way in which people have ideas. Anyway, <laughs> it's a big digression. You're laughing because this has nothing to do with reality at all, but um, uh, but, uh, you know, but I do think it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, somebody was on this podcast earlier, and they're talking about sort of a very large effect. Um, oh, I know what it was. Is the Akthar. Uh, Daniel Hartung, Akthar is a corticotropin, which is this some, um, I don't want to say the word I'm trying about to say, but it's a, it is something of highly disputed evidence base that has a huge price that is Medicare is being paid for. And there was a strong relationship with the people who prescribed Akthar gel by Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and those in whom there's financial conflict of interest. And Daniel Hartung did a lot of that work to map that out. And, and I've told him that I hadn't seen sort of such, such, such strong signals I think one of the reason that we see a strong signal here and that was seen in Akthar um, is that this is a sort of one-hit wonder kind of company. It's a company that has really one product, and so it allows you to look at their payments in a very clean way. When you start to look at it for Pfizer or Amgen or something, it's a, I mean, they make so many products that it's hard to know, uh, you know what one payment here means and what, what, what its purpose may have been. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'd say I think it's really good work. It appeared in the Journal of Cancer Policy. It's out now. I think I'll tweet it out when, when we put out this podcast. Um, you, did a, you did two projects that really took a lot of your time. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Did you gain anything from it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of experience with Excel. Um, a lot of time with you. No, I, I, I think... Um, so two negatives there. <laughs> so more time with me or the paperclip? Which was it? Um, the paperclip. That Excel paperclip Oh, that, that Excel helps paperclip. You. That helps you. It never actually helps, though. <laughs> um, same with me. It never... <laughs> just tell you you're doing a good job. Pat you on the back. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, I, I enjoyed the, the TTF paper more, as you can probably tell just yeah, from I us guess, talking yeah. about it. There's, yeah. I just feel like there's a lot more meat there. And, and How dare you. The money side is very interesting. Killing me. It also it took less of my time, so that was probably I see. Um, yeah, yeah. part of it. But uh, no, I... I Again, we've talked a lot about the financial side, and, and I think it's very interesting, and, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of money in, involved in all of this. And Kaiser draws a full firewall. It's worth pointing out. As a Kaiser physician, you're not allowed to consult for any drug companies, is my understanding. Oh, I've never been in that position, so I, I don't see. know that I <laughs> yeah, <laughs> had I think... to come up against that. That's probably true. I don't know for sure, though. Uh, and, and, and then the other thing I always like to point out is if you were an employee of Pfizer, you would not be allowed to consult for Novacure. It is stricter for you to work for Pfizer than it is for you to work at a university. Yeah. I think that's just an interesting observation because, of course, conflict of interest had nothing to do with anything, as some people would want you to believe. Then yeah. why could I not work for Amgen and consult for Pfizer on the side? 
yeah. have at it. It's all confluence of interest. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing, and, and I've never seen any data on this, but like, what do patients think about physicians that have a lot of conflict? Yeah. Like if, if you see a doctor and the doctor says, I recommend this medication, and oh, by the way, the makers of this drug gave me $40,000. Like, how do patients see that? I'm gonna pull it up. Is Hold there a on. paper? Yeah, there's, I think, a paper. Oh, uh, here it is. The Impact of Disclosing Financial Ties in Research and Clinical Care by Steve Joffe and colleagues. Oh, by LeCourse and colleagues, of which Steve Joffe is an author, Systematic Review. Patients believe that financial ties influence professional behavior and should be disclosed. Patients, physicians, and research participants believe financial ties decrease the quality of research evidence, and for some, knowledge of financial ties would affect willingness to participate in research. No study assessed the impact of physician financial disclosure on patients' willingness to receive clinical care. So mostly documented research, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and in no way am I criticizing anyone for receiving money, right? Like that—that's not what this is about either. That's not what you're doing, but I'll that's do not that. what you. I'll yeah. leave that okay. to you. Okay. I, you yeah. know, I, but I think you know, in my own life, if I told patients like, "I want you to take this medication," and by the way, they pay me a lot of money. Yeah, patients would scoff at that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's that would be my anecdotal impression. I'll say a few things about disclosure. One is I I wonder as you wonder, what is the impact of disclosure on the patient's perception of care, on their actual choices, on what they do? I think that's important, and and there is some some work that explores that. The second thing I think is what is the impact of disclosure on the psychology of the person receiving the payment. Uh, I believe there's a paper, which I'll have to track down later, that suggests that people who know their payments will be disclosed someday are actually less likely to engage in those relationships and may, hmm. may come to second guess, like, is it actually worth it for me to have this disclosure, um, to have this relationship? So is it a deterrent? Is there a deterrence feature to it? The third thing about disclosure that's underappreciated is that disclosure facilitates research like the research you did. Without disclosure, you could not do your research as a tool um, to study the problem even more. I guess I would say that I think reasonable people may disagree on what the appropriateness or inappropriateness of these financial ties is. I think, you know, we've written some papers, not you and I, but I have written some other stuff where I argue that the same kind of financial entanglements that would be considered political corruption in academic mm-hmm. sense are considered just a con- just a footnote, just a conflict of interest. It's a paper we published in the Hastings Center. I think that um, part of the reason why it is so hard to get reform here is, I guess, a couple fold. One, I think people who often receive the disclosures may feel as if they deserve the disclosures. And, you know, they, they might deserve something because actually these are people who worked very, very hard. They're very, very smart. They do really good research. Um, they probably had deferred income for at least a decade or two decades when they did all their training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they may feel like they're entitled to actually the, the fruits of what they've earned. I've paid my dues. Uh, now let me enjoy some of the financial dis- ties and that come with you know the opportunity. Uh, second, they're probably making less than they would make in private sector or in uh, private practice, and so they may say that this is a way to kind of bridge that gap, to take away that sort of that loss. Um, so I think that's part of the reason it persists. I think the other part of the reason it persists so greatly is that at the end of the day, doctors are a really revered position in America, and. Um, Doctors, like other people who are revered, probably get away with more than what people who aren't revered are. So the same behavior from a congressman, which might get uh, public scorn, will in your in your family physician might be like, well, he's a good guy, he's my family physician, or she's she's a fantastic family physician. Um, it might be treated differently. 
I think so, those are some of the some of the things. But I, the literature I had been reading earlier, and I'll have to pull it all up, which is that in general, the disclosure actually leads the person being told to have greater confidence in the person confessing their sins. Hmm. It's sort of a um, uh, it, it sort of cuts the other way. Yeah. But it's an interesting paper. Uh, you wanted to end by saying there are a number of ongoing studies of the uh, of this TTF. Yeah. So um, one is in pancreatic cancer. One is in non-small cell lung cancer. And there have been phase two trials of, of both of those that have been published recently. Um, neither of, of them are sham controlled. I see. Well, randomized is better than non-randomized. Mm-hmm. Sham is better than no sham. Um, but any confirmatory study is better than no confirmatory study. I think the real questions will be asked if all of the other randomized trials are null, and this is the only setting in which it works. And I'm sure, like many things in life, if somebody were to come up with a biological reason why this would work and other things wouldn't, we can all come up with said reasons after the fact. I recently read um, some article about um, Supreme Court jurisprudence, and the author said, it makes a lot more sense if you think about it in terms of this way. These are smart people trying to come up with arguments to reach the conclusions they've already reached than the other way around. It makes more sense. And sometimes when you read editorials of medical papers, it's smart people trying to come up with arguments to reach the conclusions they've already reached. And and that's that's what worries you when financial ties go so much hand in hand with those conclusions. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think all of us do that, right? Like we have our idea and then we kind of make up the course to get there. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard not to. It's hard that's, not to. That's part of what clinicians do though is you have to question yourself yeah it's literally the skill that's taught in every term paper right come up with your thesis and then come up with whatever garbage gets you to that thesis <laughs> well michael hayes it's been a pleasure to have you on the plenary session stage to take us through these two important papers i think we will let um we will let others decide which is the most important but let me just check how much they're both been cited i anticipate the number will be small <laughs> You can cut that out if you want. No, that's good. You can keep it. Association <laughs> between conflict of interest and published position on TTF. Zero citations. But it's only been out a few, but come on, a few weeks. That's not fair. It's not fair at all. That one's brand new. It's brand new. They're just, people are just ready for it. Now let's go to the parachute one. I wonder how many people will cite our parachute paper to recommend that theirs is also a parachute. The ultimate, <laughs> the meta irony of meta research. Ah, most medical practices are not parachutes. A citation analysis. Nine. It's not bad. It's not bad. I'm famous. (laughs) Oh, the altmetric score, 449 for that parachutes paper. That means, as they say, people are talking about it, top 5%. Now let's look up the altmetric score for the other one. Three. The other, the other that sounds three. better, right? It's, a, <laughs> it's closer to one, closer, which is great. Yeah. It's, uh, hmm, I wonder how that scale goes. Okay. Well, but people will be talking about it after this podcast. They'll be nothing but dinner party conversation. Yes. Did you see the link between editorial stance and financial conflict of interest? It's riveting. Uh, so, I don't know. History will, history will be the great arbiter, uh, as all our work. But I, uh, I, I wish to commend you for both these projects. I think they're very interesting. You know, uh, we don't have all the answers, but I think it's, it's you're scratching on the surface of something interesting. And uh, I hope to have you back on the plenary session stage uh, when we do something again in the future. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. 
Review this podcast at the iTunes store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>